This morning we're going to consider Peter walking on the water. We're looking at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through to 33. Having just fed in excess of 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes, the Lord Jesus Christ constrained his disciples to get into a ship and sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee whilst he went up a mountain to pray. Later on, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus walked on the sea as he went out to meet his disciples. When they saw him coming, they were afraid and he said to them, Be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. Peter then began to walk on the water towards Jesus, but he became afraid and he began to sink. He cried out to Jesus and the Lord saved him. When Jesus and Peter got into the ship, the wind ceased and the disciples worshipped him. That's a a summary of the passage that we're now going to look at in a bit more detail. Let's have a look again at verse 22 of Matthew 14. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. We read in verse 22 that Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go off on their own to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Sailing wouldn't have been a big deal for those men. After all, most of them were fishermen. So why did Jesus need to constrain them or persuade them to get into that ship and to go on that journey without him? Well, think about it. They just finished helping Jesus by distributing food to a multitude of people when Jesus miraculously fed them the multitude with five loaves of bread and two fishes. The disciples had been there. They'd actually helped Jesus. That really was a miracle when you consider that not only did that meagre amount of food multiply to feed over 5,000 tummies. At the end, there were 12 uh, 12 baskets of fragments left over. So there was more to end with than there was to start with. The disciples had seen all that. They'd been part of it all. Those disciples must have been like little children who, having had a great time, dragged their heels as dad said to them, it's time to go to bed. However, what they wouldn't have known at the time was that Jesus had something else planned for them, something which would be all part of that steep learning curve that they were on during their three years with Jesus. They had already been on a ship with him during a storm. There are details about that elsewhere. In the Gospels, Jesus sleeping, 
at the back of a ship and uh, a storm arose. The disciples thought that they were going to drown. They woke Jesus up and they said, Lord, do you not care that we perish? And on that occasion, what did Jesus do? He rebuked the storm, didn't he? And he said, peace be still. And the waves were still. However, on this occasion, the disciples would soon be on a ship in the midst of a stormy sea without the physical presence of Jesus. It was going to be altogether different. As such, Jesus was going to take his disciples into a whole new experience in order to build them up in their faith and to equip them for their apostolic ministries. Dear Christian, perhaps you have had experiences when you have been busy and productive, or at least that's how you've seen it, in your Christian service, and then it's as if the Lord has just taken you away from it all. And you don't really understand why things were going really well, and then, for whatever reason, the Lord has taken you away from it all. You need to understand that even though Jesus really does use Christians in his service to advance his kingdom and to build his church, when he uses you, he doesn't really need you. He doesn't need any of us. What the God of your salvation is doing when he uses you in his service is that he is working in you in a very personal way. And this is a wonderful thing, you know. I'd say, it's, it, to be quite honest for me, it's even more wonderful to think that I'm doing something in his service. I find it more wonderful to think that Jesus is dealing with me personally. Every time I do something in Christian service, it's Jesus dealing with me. And you can say that about yourself, dear Christian. And that shows just how much God loves you, that when he uses you for whatever it is that he has for you to do, he's actually building you up in your faith and conforming you to the image of your saviour. Moulding you, shaping you. Intervening personally in your born again life. And loving you. He's building you up in your most holy Christian faith as he draws you ever closer to himself through various God-given trials of faith, various things that, that God has for you to do and to go through during your earthly pilgrimage. Let's have a look at verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. It seems as if the Lord Jesus Christ was always praying. You see that when you read the Gospels. For example, he used to rise a great deal, a great while rather, before daylight. He'd go into a solitary place and he would pray. 
Jesus spent all night in prayer before choosing his apostles. And as can be seen in today's passage, Jesus prayed after miraculously feeding the multitude. And there were various other times when Jesus would pray for various reasons. Dear Christian, not that there is any requirement for you to to pray all the time, but even so, I wonder, how much time do you spend in prayer? How much do I, how much time do I spend in prayer? Simply talking to your heavenly Father. How much time do you spend simply praising God and thanking Him for sending His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem you with His own precious blood? and to save you from your sins. Do you thank God for all that you have done in his service, all those times when he has used you in Christian service, by his grace, and with the enabling power of the Holy Spirit? Do you pray that you would resist temptation to sin? With heaviness of heart, do you confess your sins to God in prayer? Do you pray that you might bring forth more fruit to the glory of God? Do you commit each new day to God, looking to him to direct your path? Do you pray that you would live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world? Again, for his glory. Do you look to God for boldness to be a faithful witness and even to rejoice when people insult you and when they persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for Christ's sake. There's a lot to pray about, isn't there? Do we do these things? To pray those things and much more besides is not unreasonable. After all, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. We'll have a look at verses 24 through to 27 in Matthew chapter 14. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Jesus came to his disciples about the fourth watch of the night. It's as well to understand that a night starts at 6pm, it finishes at 6am and that period of time can be divided up into four equal parts. Four watches. The fourth watch would have been from 3am, any somewhere between 3am and 6am, the fourth and final watch of the night. That means that the disciples had been on that ship for pretty much the whole night. 
being tossed about by the waves and getting nowhere fast on what would have ordinarily been a short journey. It didn't just happen that way. Jesus, who had previously calmed the stormy sea, allowed it to happen. And he orchestrated the whole experience. He constrained his disciples or persuaded his disciples to get on that ship and to go on that journey without him. And you can be sure that Jesus would have known that it would have been a stormy night ahead of them. But having said that, Jesus always was with them, if not physically. According to Mark chapter 6 and verse 48, he saw them toiling in rowing. In other words, even when Jesus was alone on that mountain, praying to his Father, he was, he was with his disciples, watching over them. He was never not with them. At precisely the right time, Jesus went to his disciples in spectacular style. 1,500 years earlier, God parted the Red Sea and the ancient Israelites passed through. And now, in our passage, we see the incarnate Son of God walking towards his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. You don't even have to go on a pilgrimage to, uh, to Galilee to see these things, to imagine these things. We've got it right here in our Bibles. Just read the passage and think about it. Jesus walking to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. At first, the disciples were afraid, thinking that they had seen a ghost. However, by the end of their experience in the Sea of Galilee, after seeing Jesus walking on the water, they would confess something that they had not confessed when Jesus miraculously fed the multitude. Neither did they confess it when they had been on that ship the other time when um, they said to Jesus, do you not care that we perish? On that occasion, they said, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. But now, in our passage, what do we see them saying? Look at verse 33. Then they that were with him in the ship, were in the ship, came and worshipped him, saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. It's the same as that confession from Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Who do men say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can you see why Jesus constrained his disciples to get into that ship and to go on that journey without him? Is it making sense to you? And can you see that Jesus is always with his people? As he said at the very end of this gospel, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. 
If Jesus really is the God of your salvation, then even though he is now in heaven above and highly exalted, having become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Remember that and put into practice the words of the psalmist who said, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. <coughs> Psalm 139, that's from. Well, have a look at verse 28 through to 30. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. The Lord Jesus Christ bid Peter to come to him. And in and of ourselves, we have no right as sinners to come into the presence of a holy God. Unless, of course, God bids us to come unto him. And indeed, he does precisely that. In chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And here in our passage, when Jesus said, Come, Peter took him at his word and began to approach him. In order to come to Jesus, Peter had a seemingly impossible task and an impassable obstacle, the stormy sea. No less, he came to Jesus. He walked on water to go to Jesus until such time he saw the strength of the wind and he was struck by fear of death, even though Jesus was right there with him. Peter didn't seem to realise that he no longer... Sorry, Peter didn't seem to realise that the longer he spent on that sea, walking on that sea, the closer he got to Jesus. Fear overcame reason. He was already walking on the sea when he became afraid. It's not that he was afraid to go onto the sea in the first place. 
he had failed to understand that the Lord who had bid him to come had made it possible possible for him to come by virtue of the fact that he had already begun to do what was impossible to walk on the sea. Rather than remain focused on Jesus, Peter's mind was consumed with fear. Or it became consumed with fear. How often is that the case with us Christians? God makes us new creatures in Christ. He indwells us. He equips us with enough faith to step out and follow Jesus, knowing that Jesus is with us in the storms. We know this to be the case. And God equips us for everything that he calls us to do. He equips us with the Holy Spirit. He equips us with his grace. But as soon as trials or tests of faith come our way, we take our eyes off Jesus, fear overcomes reason, and what happens? We begin to sink. How often do our hearts faint and our faith all but vanishes? When does that happen? Perhaps when persecution comes? Instead of rejoicing at being considered worthy to suffer shame, you hide away. When you're in good health, everything is just dandy and you sing God's praises. But when you're struck with ill health or someone dear to you is struck with with, um, ill health, or even dies, the praise stops. Maybe you're financially secure at the moment, but what if you lost everything? Would that affect your walk with Jesus? And then there's sin. The more you give in to sin, the more your faith dwindles, the more your communion with God diminishes to the point that your prayers are weak, pathetic and empty. As you sink deeper and deeper, all the blessed hopes, comforts and promises of God are soon forgotten. Well, look at verse 31 and 32. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, Wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Note that Jesus did not say, Peter, O thou of no faith. Neither did he say, O thou of pretend faith. Jesus said, O thou of little faith. And we thank God for little faith. Peter's faith may have been tiny at that point in time, but but it was nevertheless a real saving faith. Even though he had his faults, his failings, such as denying the Lord three times when he was arrested, Peter clearly loved Jesus, and without a genuine saving faith, no one can truly love Jesus. The world hates Jesus. It is only a regenerate person 
a sinner saved by the grace of God who loves Jesus. And that is because Jesus loved him first. And while we were yet sinners, God commendeth his love towards us that Christ died for our sins. Sometimes Peter demonstrated great faith, such as when he stepped out of the ship and began to walk on the stormy sea, whilst at other times his faith was weak, such as when he began to sink. Be extremely thankful that salvation does not depend upon you. Rather, salvation is of the Lord, who works repentance and gives faith to the helpless and hopeless. God is not in the business of destroying whatever faith his blood-bought children have. We see that time and again with Peter. Also in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3, it is written, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. When reading that verse, you might like to consider how one might support a weak plant stem with a stick. Years ago, I can remember my dad doing that, a little plant, the stem had actually snapped and he messed around with it and and made some kind of a support for it and he spent all that time, I don't know if he succeeded, but he spent so much time trying to um, fix that little plant whose stem had broken. So we might like to consider how one might support a weak plant stem with a stick or how one might gently blow on a wick to fan the dying flame with oxygen. Similarly, the Lord Jesus Christ tenderly cares for his redeemed. As soon as Peter cried out, Lord, save me, Jesus stretched out his hand to him. Also, we see that the Lord has no interest in punishing our unbelief, although it may seem like it at times. Neither does the Lord desire to let his loved ones sink when they are ensnared in sin. More generally, the concern of Jesus is to deliver all who cry out to him to be saved. As it is written in Psalm 145, Verse 18 and 19. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. And having saved from their sin all who cry out to him, Jesus will be with them all the time, whether holding their feeble and trembling hands in a stormy sea or being with them in a fiery furnace. He will be with them. He will be with you if you are trusting in him as your saviour from sin. No doubt about it. Finally, Peter cried out, Lord, save me. As a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, he had every right to cry out to his Lord. After all, Jesus loved Peter so much 
that he later bear his sins away on Calvary's cross. Like Peter, all of you who are trusting in Jesus as your Saviour and your Lord must cry out to him whenever you are sinking in trials of faith or when you are ensnared in sin. Those three words, Lord save me, when cried from a heart that has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, will not go unheard by God. However, maybe there is someone in here who has not yet cried out to God to save you from your sin. You two are most certainly sinking. But you're not sinking in the Sea of Galilee, are you? You're not sinking as Christians sometimes feel like they are sinking. The fact of the matter is that you are sinking deeper and deeper towards hell. Hell is a place that is full of souls who have never cried out, Lord, save me. So I say to you, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And when you die, you will go to be with Jesus, your Lord and your Saviour in heaven. Amen.